Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are finally doing what we announced about a month ago at this point. We are going to be discussing Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 1. This is by Itaru Kinoshida and has Shinichi Fujiwara as a research consultant who also provides little bits of extra like educational prose between chapters. This is brought over into English courtesy of Seven Seas Entertainment. We have translation credit is John Neal and lettering credit to J.M. Ayatomi Crondall. The original uh, copyright date for this is 2021, just recently came over in English a few months ago. And yeah, it's it's dinosaurs and it was a gift from me to you and as far as i can tell it's the gift that keeps on giving so going into this i just want to make it clear that i think this is a strong contender not only for the best comic we have covered on the podcast but the best comic of all time high praise it's beautiful it's wonderful it has a triceratops that sits like it's a cat the dinosaurs are all very cute to me so yeah i have come with three books to reference out of and a several pages long email i sent to myself as reference because we will be talking about a lot of things but most of it's good so science yeah i'll probably do a bit more of the actual just like plot summary while you provide the paleontological discourse at the end of like each part we're just gonna have a, a little deep dive of some some fun info I, I looked up about the different species that are sort of mostly focused on. I didn't go insane and look up everything we see because I'm not going to do that to myself, frankly. But we will still, however, really be getting into it. Um, this is, as we said, a volume one. So this has to do all the work of establishing the entire premise of how the hell are there dinosaurs here? But we'll dive into that as we get to it. Chapter 1 is titled Needy Yuki, and our opening color pages take place an indeterminate number of years in the past prior to the events of the main story. And essentially we have a little girl excitedly running around an interior exhibit with like fossilized dinosaurs on display. We have the classics, like one looks like a T-Rex, one looks like a Tyrannosaurus, or one looks like a Triceratops, and the girl is really excited, just loves dinosaurs, as kids are wont to do. She declares that she's going to be a dino keeper when she grows up, and we get this splash page that features a real-life dinosaur, because, as you could tell by the title, real-life dinosaurs are also going to be a thing in this book, and... Would you like to wax poetic about their artistic rendition of a T-Rex? Okay, so this is very, very clearly a Tyrannosaurus. Uh, you've got the two claws on the hand, the skull. It's a very, very accurate, very modern reconstruction of a Tyrannosaurus. It has one major problem. So this is, 
I'm gonna say came out 2021, May 2020. So I am going to keep that in mind when I'm talking about it, and luckily, aside from one dinosaur, there's not been anything too insane that's happened in the last two years to make this book feel inaccurate. But here I have a problem, because in 2017, Phil R. Bell and colleagues came out with a paper about Tyrannosaurus integument. The Tyrannosaurus here is portrayed as having fluffy downy feathers over the vast majority of his body, which is, I would say, excellent shorthand for we're not doing a Jurassic Park riff with our dinosaurs, we're actually trying to stick to the paleontological evidence, and Tyrannosaur ancestors had feathers, so Tyrannosaurus probably had feathers. Unfortunately, we have traced fossil evidence of Tyrannosaurus skin, what, the integument, which is the skin, the body covering. Um, I'm gonna say integument a lot this episode. I need to start saying integument more often, it's a great word. But basically just skin? Yeah. Um, it, it didn't have feathers. At least if it did have feathers, it did not have feathers all over the vast majority of its body. It would have had, um, well, fine pebbly skin, sort of like concrete like, textured scales, like, very small, very fine scales. If you want to see a fucking perfect reconstruction of a T-Rex for, like, most up-to-date, everything we know now, go watch Prehistoric Planet, a magnificent little documentary that I'll probably bring up a couple more times, actually. Yeah, so, out of the gate, I think we have, actually, I think maybe the worst depiction of a dinosaur in the entire <laughs> book. This is the only one where I'm like, right, but you're wrong. And it's the first one we see. <laughs> but as you said, the feathers are at least an indication that we are trying. Yeah, it's, it's, if you want to make sure people know you're not doing, like, the shit Jurassic World did, where we just have a bunch of awful, like, like, literally, I think the dinosaurs actually got worse in that than they were in the original Jurassic Park. And like, the original Jurassic Park, they were pretty decent for the early 90s. And then you go 20 years forward in time and they're like, well, what if dinosaurs were slow, shitty reptiles? Which was a thing that even Jurassic Park was like, well, fucking hell no, obviously not. They're terrifying murder birds. I mean, I wouldn't say that dinosaurs are terrifying murder birds, but that's definitely a better fucking way of putting it than slow garbage reptiles. Speaking as the one of us who's not a dinosaur otaku... My main reaction to the dinosaurs throughout is just going to be, how cute. And just like, as a reader going in, this like opening color spread. It's like, the T-Rex looks really majestic to me. He looks like big, but also silly and just a real fun mix of things between just like the big recognizable giant head with that open jaw and those teeth but also his teeny little arms and claws. And then, you know, he just looks really soft. And, you know, like choosing a T-Rex to be the first thing you do, I think is a pretty obvious move to do. And it's fantastic. It's a great drawing. I love it. Yeah, like the sheer artistic skill in this book for Al also that we'll talk about is all very nice. Because like, there are just so many little lines on every part of this book that, like, at least, like, specifically with regards to the dinosaurs and the animals, uh, the human being characters are 
not photorealistic. They're more stylized in a way that allowed this manga to ever be finished, you know, because <laughs> of just the sheer amount of work that goes into the dinosaurs. It's not surprising, you know, that the humans would be not photorealistic. And, like, the style works. Like, none of this is a con. The way the humans look is also good for what it is as well. It reminds me of the uh, video game Planet Zoo, where all the animals are rendered very realistically, and then the people are these sort of fun cartoon people, which in that case is mostly to avoid when you look at the humans having, like, the the uncanny valley thing that you get with, like, low-poly humans in a park game where you can only put so much work into them. Yeah, and at the end of the day, the dinosaurs are the point. Oh yeah, I, I'm here to look at some really nice pictures of dinosaurs doing cute things in a fun zoo that is actually set up like a zoo, which, the way that this book... I mean, listen, it's about a dinosaur zoo, so... It is in dialogue with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, whether it really wants to be or not, and I would argue that it wants to be. This comic does feel like someone saw Jurassic World and was really bothered by it the way that I was, but this person could draw, so we got a comic out of it. Whereas with me, it's just everyone I know has received a rant at some point about just everything. Anyway, moving on from the first couple pages... Yeah, we're 10 minutes of raw audio. Those were the first free pages of the book. Um, moving into the present day, our protagonist's name is Suma, Suzu Suma Suzume. She is a young woman who is the newest hire at this struggling aforementioned dinosaur zoo. We open up with a sort of typical, like, waking up, oh no, I've got a rush, I'm gonna be late to my new day, new job sort of thing. And we get a lot of information quickly told to us via the news that happens to be on the TV in the background as she's getting ready. And conveniently, the interview is here to let us know everything about the base premise. I'll go ahead and just do some quotes here. Dinosaurs were fought to be extinct until 1946, when a few survivors were discovered on uninhabited Barakan Island. Time and careful breeding of the Barakan specimens brought dinosaurs back elsewhere as well. In 1987, Dr. Suma Ichiro made breakthroughs in genetic manipulation that restored extinct species, kicking off a worldwide dino boom. It seemed like dinosaurs were all you ever heard about back then. It sure did, but that all changed after a fatal incident in 2006 put a damper on dinomania. Have dinosaurs jumped the shark? Unfortunately for some of our viewers, the answer is yes. So we immediately get really all you need to know for the explanation of how are dinosaurs here. They just quickly say, yep, science did it, they're here to stay. And there's some foreboding accident hanging over the industry, but we'll get to that later. What did you think of this setup? I mean, listen, you can't actually say that they pulled the DNA out of fossilized amber, because as it turns out, that doesn't work. They've tried it. So <laughs> they hadn't tried it when the Jurassic Park book was written when that was come up with, and they've tried it since, and it doesn't happen. So saying that we found a Skull Island and then we reverse-engineered the rest of them from there with genetic technology. Yeah, that works about as well as anything ever was going to. I'd love to see the looks on the faces of the guys in 1945 who found these fucking dinosaurs, and it's like they show up 
they would have not realized that these were dinosaurs because they're too different from what we thought about dinosaurs in 1945, which I love. I, I, I would love a flashback to those guys on that island going, what the fuck is this giant bird monster and why is it yelling at me? Yeah, it would be inherently like a colossal altered history of science, really, which I guess sort of begs the question, in this world, would we have never got an equivalent of Jurassic Park in terms of creating those expectations for what dinosaurs looked like? No, we did. It just happened in reality. (laughs) But like, yeah, no, that would have been very funny. I I wonder how long it took for them to realize that they were dinosaurs. I'm like, how many years was it until, like, one of them died and they looked at the skeleton and was like, hang on a second. Yeah. Have we been putting these together so wrong this whole time? But anywho, as Suzume is heading out, she says, all right, I'm heading out. Wish me luck, dad. And there's not actually another person in the house. We get this panel of a little shelf with some framed photographs and what looks like an incense burner. Essentially, I guess I don't know if you're familiar with this since you've consumed way less Japanese media than I have, but this is just sort of a go-to showing a little, like, shrine or little memorial area in the house that's sort of a common way of, I guess, just having, like, a nice little memorial spot for the dead. So it doesn't, like, explicitly say, but it's the in dialogue but this is the quick little conveyance of her father is dead and yeah there's definitely like a sense of you know them having like a bond and him being and of him being instrumental in her interest in dinosaurs but for now we just get the little moment of her going to work and we arrive at Inoshima Dino Land which is a fun name and we get a couple like wonderful little spreads of some dinosaurs we got some protoceratops a i want to say it's camarasaurus but honestly i should double check the map and see if i'm correct but yeah yeah we get these shots of dinosaurs and one thing i'll note that i appreciate is that we also get in the backgrounds of these shots we also get currently existent animals like we get birds flying in the background and we get like the chirping of cicadas which i really appreciate as just being a non-showy just matter-of-fact way of going this is the real world this is modern day it's not just that we found like a savage land type area with dinosaurs this is them now inhabiting the same world as humans and everything else we have a we have a dinosaur zoo on an island and this dinosaur zoo like everything else is being held back by shitty investors and financially not doing so hot and it appears to have at least for like an operation of this size a very scaled back and small staff size and everyone's just kind of struggling and the park's not doing too hot. We It's stated in dialogue that there's more people working here than we see, but we only ever see, including Suzume, five people working at this fucking park with like 20 different very large animals that would require a lot of work to take care of. It's fine. Part of that's narrative convention. Um, oh, while we're on the page, do we have Camarasaurus? 
Chimerasaurus. I was fucking right. Thought so. Yeah, which this is a bit later that they show the actual map, but I'll just go ahead and establish uh, what they say about the contents of the park. It is Japan's smallest dinosaur park, but it has six types of carnivores, 13 herbivores, four types of pterosaur, one plesiosaur species, to total 24 different species and 72 individual dinosaurs within this park. Um, I really fucking love that we get a map, partly because it tells me what species will hopefully show up in future volumes, and I'm like, all of these would be great. And partly because um, the video game Prehistoric Kingdom lets you build dinosaur parks, and now this is my goal. I will build this park, and I will have little signs saying this is Enoshima Dinosaur Park, and I'm going to name all the dinosaurs the right names. You're going to have Masaru. I have already started on Masaru's habitat. Listeners will get to Masaru in a little bit. Masaru is the best dinosaur. This is a Masaru stan account, but... This is this is Let's Talk Masaru. Yeah, like you said, there's really only five human characters of any import. The main two are really Suzume, the new hire, who we've already mentioned, and the other is a young man named Kaido. Actually, and... how young is he? Because he's established him been working at Dinoland 15 years ago during the incident. And I'm like, is he meant to be like 30? I suppose probably something like that. He like, he, he really looks like young. He four years older than her. But like, if you think about when he was working at a dino park as presumably the equivalent of her, right? I'm like, he's he's in his 30s. She's in her 20s. He's in his 30s. Yeah, I don't think either of them gets a specific age at any point so maybe they're even both like early 30s or something well she's young she reads is quite young yeah it's just like a bit indeterminate (laughs) we don't get it here i have i have the fear i have the existential fear that i get anytime there's a man and a woman in fiction who are like equivalent age and in close proximity that gives me the fear of if you build up a romance in my goddamn dinosaur book. It's happening. I will say this. It's definitely happening. I don't mind it. Although every time I think about the 15 years ago, he's working the same job she's working now. I'm like, okay, how old is everyone? Um, (laughs) Like that age gap is a bit much. And also he's her boss. So weird. It certainly won't be the most problematic romance we've ever discussed on this podcast. Oh, yeah, see, you have bought all the problematic romances. This is, like, lightly problematic. This is, maybe one of you should work at a different dinosaur park level problematic. Um, The stuff you've brought is, like, oh, God, I need to pour bleach into my eyes problematic, so it's fine. (laughs) This is fine. The stuff I've brought is partner A is imprinted on partner B like a duckling to its mother. Void. (laughs) <laughs> Anywho. Anyway, can we get back to the best comic of all time? Thank you. Anyway, um... Even if it has the romance, it won't hamper my enjoyment of this book. Yeah, and, like, I'm overstating, like, my sense is that it won't be that big of a thing, and, like, the character work as is here is fine. But anywho, we have those two are the main ones. There's... Karen. Yeah, Karen is also probably similar aged, maybe a bit older. And then we get one more looks like similar age cohort. 
And then there's, like, one, like, far older than everyone else man who seems to be, like, the highest up in terms of actual daily activity who's not, like, a suit in some other city or something. He He's the guy who has to deal with the fact that he's the one who talks to the suits. Yeah. The, like, local manager, but not in a bad way. Yeah. Shortly after those little scenes of just establishing how skeleton crew this place is... We move to, I guess, just like a little show that's being put on for a group of um, grade school children that are coming. This is kind of fucked up. It is kind of fucked up. <laughs> I Essentially, love it, this is what this is what you would do, but it also is to an extent kind of fucked up. Yeah, the main dinosaur of note here in chapter one is named Yuki. She is a Gigantosaurus. Uh, Giganotosaurus. Giganotosaurus. I, as a kid, I always said Gigantosaurus. <laughs> like, no, I missed out on like four, o, three, two O's. So yeah, it's Giganotosaurus. She has a little introductory text box saying that her length is 13 meters and her weight is six to eight metric tons. In other words, like all of them, she is a big bitch. And possibly the biggest. Yeah. And basically, Kaido has a little speakerphone to explain to the children what's happening as they feed Yuki a carcass feeding. And he explains to the children, this is when we take deer, boar, and other invasive species that have been called, and we put their bodies to good use as food for carnivorous dinosaurs. So these children have shown up to look at dinosaurs, and first thing in the morning, they're looking at this decapitated head of a mammal hung up on this like lifting device to feed to Yuki. And while Kaido I would say is very good at taking care of the animals, he is very bad at the like outreach aspects of a zoo, which this is. This is a zoo and it's a zoo that actually functions like a real zoo, which is part of the ways in which this is in dialogue with Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, etc. We'll talk about that. Yeah, like there's the mix between or, like, there's the awareness of the back and forth between animal conservation and these animals being here means we have to take care of them. And there's talk about their health and their habits, their behaviors, what working at this place might look like. And also this place existing as a business, you know, as a means of making money, hence the suits and all of their interference throughout. And... That's how we arrive with the children looking at, I need to emphasize, this beheaded carcass in this panel. Of a deer. Like, that would kind of fuck me up as an adult, much less like a second grader. I, I, I am sort of like, this is the thing you pick. Like, I, this is this is what you show the high schoolers, right? Because they'll think it's rad. Yeah, it's a bit much here. Um, To include Karen going, dial it down, man. They're five. <laughs> But yeah, this is, like you said, establishing the character beats that of the main characters, Kaido is like very competent at his job as like an animal caregiver, but he's not great at and frankly, I don't think cares about like public presentations and such and dealing with the public. And if I worked here, I would be a Kaido type because fuck the customer. Yeah, well, like there's there's. Uh, we'll get to that when we talk about Masaru, but I, there's a lot of this that I really, really, really love. Like, I don't just love the dinosaurs in this. I think that the narrative is actually, like, pretty cool. But yeah. 
Yeah, I think the delivery of character throughout is very good. I think the pacing is all quite nice. Like overall, I think pretty much everything about the way that the narrative and bits of information are like paced out and delivered is quite nice. But yeah, as we mentioned, we get Yuki. The kids are initially excited at the sight and they immediately, you know, do the obvious comparison. They're kids. They're thinking about Yuki in relation to a T-Rex, which leads to Kaido doing some more presentation stuff about how the species are different to include a panel of like the two species skulls and talk about the differences between their bites and their teeth, which led to me texting you about how I had chosen pornography for you. This is deeply sexual. (laughs) You have a little chubby over there. Um, I, I got to this page in this book, and I was already like, okay, okay, you know, the, the feathers on the rets, but I can see you're, you're trying, you're trying, comic, and I always want to applaud trying. This is fucking great. It's a lot of fun, and like, it's all very readable, you know, it all very clear. There's never a point in reading this where I feel bogged down by information being either too complex or like delivered too much too quickly that's what's gonna happen on this podcast (laughs) yeah it's just like he tells the kids a bit about like their bites their teeth just more about the dinosaurs one little girl you know naturally realizes that this is a deadly beast and she starts crying and kaido doesn't really know what to do (laughs) kaido does not know how to people how how to people how to small child yeah At which point the new girl runs over, she's just arrived, and she does the work of calming the child down. There's a little moment of like, see those birds over there? Birds are dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are animals like you and me. All true. And yeah, essentially she calms the kids down. Kaido goes through with dropping the carcass into the enclosure for Yuki to feed. We get a panel very intentionally framed of, like, Yuki approaching, jaw big and open, looking very Jurassic threatening. And you turn the page, next panel, the leg from the carcass hits Yuki's snout with a bonk sound effect. And Yuki is just very slowly examining the carcass and then, like, gently lifts it up in her mouth and is carrying it elsewhere. And essentially, Kaido talks about how dinosaurs in captivity have a lot of free time. So Yuki's sort of playing with her food to approximate her hunting instincts and not just like rush chomp in one bite. I love this. This examination. Okay, what? what, this is what real zoos do with like actual carnivores. That's, That's part of what I like about this is like they fought about it on both a... Like, there's, there's like, the baseline narrative stuff with the previous incident and keeping the park open. There's the stuff about, like, day-to-day running of a zoo that is treated very much like a real zoo, where you're having to do things like animal enrichment and um, guest education. And then there's also the extra added fact that it's all about dinosaurs, so you have all this fun paleontological stuff to pull from. Yeah. But this is, like, this is very much, like, a thing that's just, like, based on stuff that real zoos do to, like, keep lions happy. Yeah. And we get Suzume talking to the kids again. 
and sort of delivering a thesis of, that's the thing about dinosaurs, they may be big, but they get nervous and scared too. Sometimes they get sick or hurt. That's because they're living things, just like you and me. What do you think now? Still scary? And the kids are all calmed down. And we then move forward a little bit to her introducing herself to her co-workers. And Karen's just like, you saved our butts with those kids, thanks. Meanwhile, Kaido is Mr. Serious and is just like, the ends don't justify the means. You've got to treat everything you do here like it's dangerous. You can't do whatever you feel like. Just put on a show for some kids. Whatever. Time for some real work. Hurry up and get changed. He's cranky. There's also a very beautiful uh, panel of a Spinosaurus in here that's here for no more reason to be like, Look! Spinosaurus! And this was presumably written and drawn in 2020, so I am not going to criticize it for not being up to date with the, well the skeleton they found in 2020. <laughs> I don't know how all the dates work out. I don't think there's any way they could have known that was going to happen. But assuming we're working from the 2014 specimens that we found, this is a very accurate, very nice Spinosaurus. And I really love that he's hanging out in the water because most dinosaurs didn't do that, but he did. One thing I'll note in this panel and then also relates to other panels is we specifically get like shots of filtered light on his silhouettes, giving the sense of like, oh, there's probably like a canopy above him where like light is partially filtered through trees. And we get just like a bunch of shots throughout where light is a consideration as we see it like brushing off of like palm trees or we just see like reflections on vehicle windows. And that's just something that the artist is thinking about is light interacting with objects in order to make it feel all the more real, which I appreciate. It's just stunning artwork. Yeah. We then get the map that we mentioned a few minutes ago as Kaido explains more about the park. I love a park map. Yeah. I love a map in general. And we get just a little bit more of the obligatory. Here's all these safety features. They tell us about, like, the mandatory, like, ditch depths between the big dinosaurs and, like, the fences where patrons can actually look out from. We get some, like, electric fencing, and there's just the line, they meet the requirements set after you-know-what, and... Basically every panel we get a dinosaur in, we also see some kind of security measure throughout this book. Um, like, only at very rare points does any... There's, like, one tiny moment where someone feels like they might be in a very slight amount of danger from a dinosaur later on, and it lasts about a panel or two. But there's always this just, like, it's in the background throughout the whole book that these are dangerous animals still. Not because they're, like, crazy and people-hungry. You know, these aren't sociopaths raised in an isolated shelter who have mad murder brains and will just kill for the act of killing. But, um, you know, they're, they're still uh, 30-foot-tall animals that eat meat and have sharp parts of their body and don't really know how to interact with stuff. Yeah, like, they're not human beings, so but, they can't communicate like humans, and they are big and have sharp claws, and therefore the potential for danger is always there. Yeah, they are, they are very much not malevolent, but they are also very much dangerous. It's a nice balance. Yeah, and after a bit of this talk, Kaido takes Suzume to help him work, 
and her first duty is helping him scoop dinosaur shit and giant wheelbarrows. You'd have to do a lot of this. I'm assuming he took her down to the sauropods, because that would be the most amount of shit. I don't know how, if they're getting so few guests, they're even fucking feeding those things, because the amount they had to eat every single day. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. I have to assume that it's, like, not entirely funded by customer purchases. Like, I have to imagine that it's, like, a hybrid of subsidized by the government or yeah like that like supplementing like outside base funding but at least beholden enough to customers that like the suits don't like how poorly it's doing but yeah don't worry about the finances it's a comic (laughs) (laughs) but yeah we get just these panels of all of this moving around horse shit later it's alluded to that They also have some other bigger equipment for dealing with this that's sometimes available. And, oh, did Kaido intentionally do this more pain-in-the-ass way to haze her a little bit? But, anywho... He's trying to beat the, um, optimism out of her. Yeah, the joy. Just every time you see someone start at your workplace, you're like, time to get the joy out of you. (laughs) I'm Mm. not gonna be able to stand it after too long. Mm Mm-hmm. I do not enjoy displays of happiness. <laughs> but yeah, and then they're nearby Yuki's enclosure. So we get a bit of them looking at her. Suzume says, Yuki's kind of needy, isn't she? And Kaido twitches with a sound effect and asks, how do you figure? And Suzume says, it's pretty plain to see. I noticed earlier when she didn't know what to do with the deer. She kept looking over at you the whole time, Kaido-san, like a kid who needs their parents' help. Plus, the whole time we've been here, she's totally ignored me. She's stuck to your side, Kaido-san. I guess dinos do get attached to people, like pets. And Kaido essentially is like, it's not that magical. I've just been working with her a long time, so she recognizes my scent. So this scene basically, again, just emphasizing the difference in their feelings about dinosaurs, but also selling that, like you said, this man has been working here forever. There's this really wonderful panel of, like, Yuki sitting down in the enclosure, like, directly underneath on, like, the side of Kaidu. Also, the way she sits is adorable, and there's a note about that at the end of this by the... Research consultant? Yeah, by the research consultant. Fujiwara. Fujiwara, thank you. There's a note at the end of this segment by Fujiwara about, like, how they came up with how the pheropods, like, sit um, in this comic, and it's it's really cool. Um, I'm not going to have anything to say about Fujiwara's work with the dinosaur's posture or, like, bone structure, because that's clearly based on these notes of focus of his work, and he's fucking smarter than I am on that one. Thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs up all around. Yeah, the talk just goes on a little bit more about how Suzume wants to help people learn that dinosaurs are creatures just like them and to be less scared. Yeah, and just like how the distrust that's happened since the incident in the public's eye, she wants to help Bridget. And we also get back in the office with the other employees confirmation that her given name, Suma, they go, she's not related to the Professor Suma, is she? And the boss just sweating goes, funny you ask, she is actually. So Suma would be 
her father, and this is directly linking her family to, again, the incident, which we do not yet know, like, what the incident was. We can, you know, make some pretty safe-feeling assumptions, but, yeah, just more of Kaido being like, you don't know anything yet, blah blah blah, cranky cranky. And that is how chapter one ends, and we get our first Dr. Dino's lab log. I love these. Yeah, courtesy of Shinichi Fujiwara. And as I said at the start, these are basically like page length bits of prose. Just little bits of like him discussing his personal research history and generally relating a bit to the dinosaurs in the specific chapters. Did you have anything specific you wanted to say? about this one or about just like the rest of chapter one before we move on um well time to enter uh this dr dino's lab log in terms of the actual note here i it no notes it's wonderful i love that he talks about figuring out stuff like how the giganotosaurus would have like rested in a seated position brilliant fabulous read this comic for that but I have done notes on all the species that are m- featured in a major way in this comic. Uh, so Giganotosaurus carolini, which is the species name, is carolini. It's uh, the genus, then the species. So there are other species of Giganotosaurus, but this... Well, they actually aren't, but, like, yeah, they could be. We could find something that's close enough that it's in the same genus, but still a different species. They lived in what is now Argentina about 99 to 97 million years ago during the late Cretaceous. They were dis- the first like bones were discovered by Ruben di Carolini and described by Rodolfo Coria and Leonardo Salgado in 1994. Um, and they clearly chose to name the species after the person who found the bones. Um, Giganotosaurus, by the way, means giant southern lizard because they're like this thing's big and it's in South America. The Specifics for Yuki, um, the Skeletical-like reconstruction that they've done is really nice. There's one of the things I really love about the Giganotosaurus skull specifically is if you look at the lower jaw, there's this little, like, downturn towards the front. They've got, like, a little chin. And this comic emphasizes that in a way that's really, really great. And if you're unaware, Jurassic World Dominion, the dinosaur movie that came out this year also prominently features Giganotosaurus, and frankly, theirs looks like shit. So, I'm really glad that we got this. I mean, I guess as a big dinosaur-like monster, their design isn't that bad, but it doesn't even have the chin. I'm like, they try to make it not look like T-Rex, but they don't make it look not look like T-Rex in all the ways that the actual animal didn't look like T-Rex. They just added a bunch of spikes to its back and emphasized the crests in a way that they shouldn't have. Real fucking shame. The other main thing is Yuki has scoots. So if you, when you see Yuki's feet, um, which we do see a couple of times, she very distinctly has scoots, which are the little like sort of bumpy scales on the tops of the feet that you see on birds and you see on basically every like depiction of theropod dinosaurs. So we know from like science and doing like genetic studies on birds, that scoots, which are those like weird sort of foot scales you see on birds as well, are actually feather cells that have been told to turn back into scales. This isn't really a criticism, but it's an interesting choice to put it on Giganotosaurus, which isn't a species that we have like 
evidence for feathers in Giganotosaurus or like any of its anything sort of around it directly. Like it's entirely possible this animal simply is descended from animals that just never had feathers. But in this comic, clearly she is. Like very specifically. So that's fun. It's it's that's like a choice that you kinda of have to make. But I think that like to a degree also that's doing standard dinosaur feet. Yeah, it's largely one of the visual expected signifiers. Uh, there's also a really cute story at the end, which we probably won't talk about much, where they uh, talk about why she's named Yuki, and it's because um, when she was younger, she was, like, white like snow, and now she's gray and looks like a plate of pickled mackerel, which, that's a fun color choice, sort of a big gray dinosaur. Yeah, it's in the way that a lot of manga volumes have. There's a couple for the volume release, just, like, little quick, like, one-page comics at the very end a bit comedic in nature and yeah there's the yuki one and any listener that doesn't already know yuki also just means snow but yeah she's cute um should we move on to chapter two yeah yeah we're uh 48 minutes into recording we are now hitting chapter two of five i'm so sorry <laughs> so chapter two begins with suzume visiting a cafe on park grounds, because again, obviously, any zoo, any large tourist attraction like this is going to have places for people to eat. So just, you know, reemphasizing more of what this facility would be like. She meets the cafe worker. It again emphasizes how poorly the park's doing, that there's no customers. And, you know, just another scene of Suzume being sweet and nice and everyone loves her but Kaido. And a little bit later, we have Suzume and Kaido going to the Truodon? Truodon, I think is how you would pronounce it. But also, that's probably wrong. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. The Truodon enclosure where they know that it's almost time for their eggs to hatch. So we're expecting baby dinosaurs. And when they arrive... They realize that it's really hot in there, like dangerously hot. The AC is shorting out from just being old, outdated equipment. And again, this place is not making money. And they arrive to realize that one of the Troodons, Nico, the little, again, obligatory data entry, length 2 meters, weight 50 kilograms. He's breathing through his mouth, indicating heat stroke. And basically, they're going to have to try an emergency deal with the situation to cool this creature down. They are yelling to, like, get the AC guys on the line stat. And they're going to have to figure out what to do. They don't want to move Nico to the clinic because he's in the middle of brooding his young. And they don't want to disrupt this already stressful, sensitive time. And essentially what they're going to try and do is do what they can to cool the animals down there. And they also notice Nico has something stuck in his throat that they also have to do, that they also have to deal with. And essentially they have to suit up and it's the first time that they are like in the enclosure, no walls, with a dinosaur. And basically there's a whole scene of having to try to hold it down in such a way to, like, not harm Nico, and there's just, like, a lot of attention to, like, 
where are the bones strong or weak? Like, how do you have to try and hold him without hurting him? And again, just zookeeper stuff and how difficult it is and how dangerous. I love the kitchen tongs they use to pull the stuff out of his throat. Yeah, he also has like, I don't know, some sort of eye guard that they like strap around the face. Reminds me of the uh, ones the Falcons wore in Dark Tower. That's what I've been thinking of when I read this too, yeah. And essentially during this, they manage to get the thing out of the throat, but Nico ends up kicking Kaido during it when Suzume like slips due to how difficult the positioning is. And yeah, it's like he doesn't get badly hurt, but it is a reminder of how dangerous this work is with these beasts and... It's a sort of real, like, face-your-situation moment for Suzume, who just knows that things could have gone wrong, and she sort of has a self-doubt moment of, why am I here? I'm just in the way. Kaido angrily tells her to get out um, and get out of the way, and Karen steps in to help out. So while they've managed to you know, get the stuff out of his throat, the uh, the enclosure's still just, like, way too hot, for, especially since uh, Nico is brooding and, you know, trying to hatch some eggs. Yeah, and, like, the ice packs they already have melt in the heat. But Suzume helps redeem herself with... There's the combination of the fans that they have, and Suzume brings gigantic blocks of ice from the cafe that doesn't need them because, again, there are no customers. And basically, they save the day, they get things down temporarily, temperature-wise, and it's stated that, like, AC repair is on the way. And we're rewarded for all of these efforts with the scene of little dinosaur babies hatching. What do you think of this? Well, first of all, the Troodons are absolutely gorgeous little feathered dinosaurs. That They're very bird-like. I mean, if you picture a raptor, you're really not that far off. Just, you know, with, like, the feathers, how they're supposed to have them. Meanwhile, the babies are very much just bird chicks with just a bit sharper, deadlier-looking claws. Yeah, and and it's it's the cutest shit I've seen in a comic in a long time, actually. <laughs> it's all very adorable. And again, just, like, this artist does a great job of, like, light and also texture like the look of the feathers and it's easy to just imagine brushing it and it being very soft. I'd love to have a Troodon as a pet. They're about the right size too. They're like the size of a dog, like a medium to large dog, I would say. And during all of this, we also get some more obligatory educational bits to include talk of false eggs where some of the eggs have like Sharpie Dawn Fs on them. And basically, it's stated that if the dinosaurs had full litters, that would be more dinos than they could handle. But they essentially add these false eggs to give the parents a sense of calm and just relaxation, I guess, as they're preparing for their young to feel like they have a full batch on the way. And also to distinguish for the caretakers, like which eggs are fake or not. Well, dinosaurs had a very high infant mortality rate, like, e certainly compared to, like, normal sort of mammals these days, where you have to deal with live births, they produced 
a lot of eggs and then expected a lot of those kids to die. So it makes sense that in a zoo environment where probably almost none of those kids are going to die, you don't want them having full litters. There'd just be too many of the fuckers. Yeah. And there's just, like, a bit more, like, they acknowledge, like, the mortality, and then they talk about, like, unfertilized or dead eggs and stuff like that. And one little bit that they note is, well, it's like you can see it in the arts, and then it's talked about more specifically in Dr. Dino's lab log number two. But we get a close-up on one of the babies emerging from its shell, and... It has what's called an egg tooth, which is an extra little temporary protrusion, like on the snout sort of beak area, which it has at the very beginning to just add added power to crack the shell and that will then like fall off soon after. But just little details we're thinking about. And, you know, like as the layman non-dinosaur nerd, it is still fun to me. It's fantastic. So... This is the section I have the most notes for. Not because I have a lot of complaints. Like, okay. So, here's the thing. Troodon formosus is a genus name that is based on some teeth. It's a good name. And it's it's a name that's been around long enough to be, like, fairly popular and recognizable. And the thing is, this species... Th- these dinosaurs should probably just be called Stenonychosaurus inequalis because we have bones from them and the specimens that were used to like create this these depictions are stenonychosaurus and it's just troodon very well could just be other stenonychosauruses and not actually a, a genus that has any value in terms of the way that like paleontologists and scientists name animals like this so, uh, they were named in, uh, Stenonychosaurus was named in 1932 by Charles Mortram Sternberg. They are from Alberta, Canada, uh, the Dinosaur Park Formation, which is a lovely formation, um, about 75 million years ago during the late Cretaceous. Uh, so it's more Cretaceous dinosaurs, because Giganotosaurus is also late Cretaceous, although a different set of years. The fact that Nico and not, what was the name of the female one? The fact that Nico is the one who's brooding the eggs and uh, not the female Troodon who actually put them in the nest is based on actual fossil evidence. This I didn't know going in, and I was like, well, I'll look up Troodon, and I initially have the whole thing with Senonychosaurus, but then I find that the whole narrative of this, where Nico is the one brooding the eggs... So they... Jack Horner found a bunch of eggs that uh, a bunch of dinosaur nests um he later re-examined the they examined the embryos preserved in the eggs and determined they were probably troodon that's what they call it in this debatable but troodon embryos inside the eggs and then a partial skeleton of an adult troodon was found in contact with a clutch of at least five eggs probably in a brooding position so they examined what the bone histology which is basically um, cracking open the bone and like studying the chemical composition of the parts of it and like the way it's layered. And it lacked the bone resorption patterns that would indicate it was an egg-laying female. So they think that this was an adult male who was brooding the eggs, which is a thing that several species of birds do today. And 
all the evidence from this nest sort of lines up with the idea that the female laid the eggs, obviously, but then the male is the one who sits on them and keeps them warm until they're ready to hatch, which is adorable. It's a really cool, accurate touch to have this. I initially just thought it was like a cute thing the comic did, and then no, it's a cute thing the dinosaur did too. Funnily enough, even though we went with the name Troodon, which, debatable if it's the right choice, we don't see much of their teeth, or we don't talk about their diet. Troodon ha- is translates to wounding tooth, because again, all they found was the fucking teeth. They thought it was a lizard at first, because they just had teeth. And the teeth are sort of your typical, like, sharp tooth, but they have these little notches on them that look like additional little spikes. And they called them wounding teeth because they thought this was, like, you know, to help wound the prey more or whatever. But it actually looks a lot like details found on a lot of herbivorous dinosaur teeth. So they reckon that these guys are probably omnivores. Another cute detail. Um, I I guess maybe if we get more from this family, we could include them, like, eating a lot of different kinds of food to have, like, an accurate diet to the way they would in the wild. Something would be nice to see in the future. Feathers make sense. They're very feathered in the comic. And, yeah, they have feathers and, and scoots on their toes like they probably should. Uh, it's, a, it's a case where I don't think we have any direct fossil evidence of feathers in this genus, but they're clade, which is essentially just the two other species that are related to them on either side of them and like the family tree have feathers, meaning that the common ancestor and also probably Troodon had feathers. Like it's, it's a thing that makes sense to assume. The dino log also talks about precocial versus altricial birds with regards to different types of birds and the young and if they are very quickly able to get up and move around on their own after hatching or if they're like a type where they have to stay in the nest and the parents get them food for an extended period of time and these little truodons are very quickly up and running around and we get these cute shots of this dinosaur family all moving around with like the parents and then the children following them. And like we get like, you know, like one of them is tripping in a shot because he's learning how to walk. It's very cute. He's been around for 10 minutes. Give him a break. Yeah, it's cute. It's endearing. Uh, Finally, everyone should look up the Troodon model that Dale A. Russell, uh, who was a curator of vertebrate fossils at National Museum of Canada in Ottawa did back in 1982. Um, because he speculated that since, uh, another fun fact about this species, whatever you want to call it, that didn't quite make it into the comic, again, I hope we get to see more of them later, they have the largest brain-to-body ratio of, like, any dinosaur species we found, meaning if you're assuming that is directly related to intelligence, which to an extent debatable, but also, yes, it partially is, could mean they are the smartest dinosaur species we're aware of. These ones look very smart and cute and just... I'm not going to say that they might be my favorite dinosaur in the book because I could say that about most of them because they're all very good. It's the way that everything feels like a highlight, that these are a highlight, you know? But just like the scene of the family running around as a highlight among highlights for me. Well, um, Russell thought so too, so he speculated that if they hadn't gone extinct, they would have kept evolving and turned into an absolutely horrifying looking, um, it, it honestly just kind of looks like an alien model. This was bad science. It, it looks like a human, 
they they wouldn't have evolved to look like a human bad science very silly but extremely funny and it made its way into my dk books as a kid i remember seeing this model and i never quite remembered where it came from aside from that it was apparently some kind of speculative evolution of troodon and it is absolutely insane that like this wasn't a silly thing done for a kid's book this was someone doing actual speculative evolution work in a museum who got paid to do this it's very fun i don't mean to be mean to uh russell though but i am a little bit i think it'll be fine you should look this up because it's absolutely horrifying looking so you'll probably love it okay uh do we have any more notes about these little babies before chapter three uh oh we do get a, a color image of um nico on the back page of the volume and the darker areas of his feathers are blue and the lighter areas are white and i think the color scheme looks really pretty yeah he's cute like we don't get a lot of color here we essentially only get the actual cover and back cover and then free pages of color at the very beginning but this is one of the lucky dinos that gets a color shot and yeah it's just a very cute color scheme on this shot of like it sitting next to kaido and just the two looking at each other kaido smiling who knows what nico's thinking about because it's a dinosaur but it just looks tranquil nico's thinking about food the orange scales on the feet and hands also lovely very bird-like touch greatly appreciate stuff doing stuff like that um yeah no i love them they're great they are not the best dinosaurs in this book, though. The best dinosaurs coming up. Yeah, so for the next bit, we'll sort of just do chapter three and four at once. This is a two-part little story entitled A Place for Masaru. This is my favorite section of the whole comic. Yeah, I probably agree, too. It's the other big highlight alongside the babies we just talked about. Masaru is a triceratops, and... This segment of the volume is another part where we're going to think about specifically dinosaurs as creatures being cared for in a zoo that, you know, is largely for monetary gain and the ways in which human beings structuring their societies around money just leads to evil. But our beloved baby Masaru isn't a baby, isn't young, just to be clear. <laughs> Our beloved full-grown baby Masaru is a Triceratops who is here at the Inoshita Zoo, having been passed along through various dinosaur parks in his life. He specifically used to be a major tourist attraction star dinosaur at a very much bigger and successful zoo. Dino Land, which also had the incident happen at it. Yeah, and specifically the employee here, Karen, used to work there as well. She's been working with Masaru since before either of them came to Inoshida. And essentially the backstory that gets unveiled is that he used to be your standard image of a Triceratops with all three horns, majestic, yada yada, until... He ended up losing one horn as a result of an accident where he got it stuck between, like, cage bars. And then, in his efforts to, like, twist out 
because he's so strong, he essentially broke off his own horn trying to get free so that now one of his horns is more of a broken stub. And at that point, audiences largely got less interested in him because they were also evil and each individual one, whoever made fun of him, needs to be put to death. And yeah, just a lot of scenes of just people... To include kids, but I don't care. Death to those kids. Just making fun of the dinosaur and being like, more like, bye, Ceratops, am I right? Ha ha ha. And basically just these people, I guess because of their wealth of options of dinosaur parks, can't just appreciate the majesty of a fucking dinosaur and are just like, why does this Triceratops only have two horns? I guess there is a wealth of options. It's such a weird thing to think about. Yeah, it's like... Because the other, like, big depiction of, like, dinosaur zoos is, like, Jurassic Park, where there's the one. The fact that this is a whole field is, like, I guess one of the differences from the Jurassic World movies. But this is much more like regular zoos in the real world, where, like, there's so many of them. And, like, to a degree, they're, like, in competition with each other. And that some different ones are run different ways and have different focuses. Yeah. I love this book. It's great. But essentially, Masaru is now at Inoshida, except the suits, the evil pieces of shit who never appear on panel, are considering selling him because he's just not a big enough cash-generating attraction because everyone's just, like, more like Biceratops. And it greatly upsets Karen because she's a human being with empathy and morals. And it turns out that his broken horn is still in storage. And Why they've kept this, I don't know, but glad they did. Thankfully they have, because Suzume has the idea to essentially take that horn and next to his exhibit on the, like, patron audience side... They essentially have the idea to, like, mount it so that people can, like, feel the horn. And, you know, it's like, I guess the rarer opportunity of this way patrons actually get to touch a part of a dinosaur and, like, feel what it feels like and feel how heavy it is. And essentially adds this new element to his area at the zoo, which leads to some renewed interest. The suits end up being, like, We'll keep an eye on the numbers, as opposed to immediately getting rid of him. So it's at least saved him for now. It's a little bit of momentary hope, at least. And yeah, Masaru is trending on Twitter, because he's a star, because everyone likes touching his horn, and how they appreciate him more. Oh yeah, there's the Instagram influencer who comes by and is just like... <gasps> um. I mean, just from a sheer, like, the the whole, like, angle of this where it's the educational opportunity and it's finding a way to actually... I'm like, wait, did they not have signage up explaining some of the basic facts they put on this sign already? That's insane, frankly, for Azu to not do that. Yeah, part of it is also, like, adding so many more signs of information, which, yeah, you would think would be a obvious thing to do, but... We get more of it here. Suzume's like, what if we ran zoo, like actual zoo, and not just series of enclosures with animals in them that people can look at, but we don't really tell you anything about those animals or engage with the audience or provide any kind of educational aspects to this at all. 
Masaru, I think, is the only dinosaur in the story who has a canonical birthday because his birthday is on the sign. And Masaru's our generation. I'm slightly older than him, but he is, at the time of the sign, 27 years old. Masaru's birthday was, as of the release of this episode, yesterday. Happy birthday, Masaru. It's the 21st. This, this episode comes out on the 21st. Yeah, unintentional, but a little alignment from the schedule change. This is almost lining up with Masaru's birthday. Happy birthday, Masaru! He is born on November 20th, 1994. Length 8 meters, weighs 7 metric tons. Original habitat, America. Yep, North America, right at the uh, uh, 68 to 66 million years ago, so right at that extinction line. Yeah, and there's just, like, various informational signs that include, like, chibi-fied cartoons of him with word bubbles, talking about, like, his food and other things to include, look out, it's constipation, poor Masaru, and a chibi triceratops with the word bubble, I can't poop. And then talking about how his food choices are specifically made to help deal with his constipation. I... I love this so much. I love the detail that the Triceratops has a hard time pooping. Uh, but yeah, these two issues are like the big focus on Karen. Like, Kaidu barely appears here, and it's mostly just Karen and Suzumi. And Karen is, I would say, jaded and exhausted, but not in the same, like, way that Kaidu is, where Kaidu is very much kind of over everything except for the basics of animal care. Yeah, it's like, Karen is also jaded and has no i guess naivete with regards to the financial aspect and just like the existence as a company as a zoo with regards to just you know the suits and the things they do you know but it hasn't entirely crushed her spirit in the way that she just still gets joy from the dinosaurs she has, like, a real close-to-breaking moment when the suits are talking about selling Masaru again. And, like, this is very largely, like, Suzume coming up with the idea to basically try and save Karen from the ultimate give-up sort of moment. And, yeah, also without Kaido here, without his sort of gruff crankiness, there's much less to distract from the sheer sweetness of it all in a way that I think helps the volume from feeling too repetitive and that we get a little break from his obligatory crankiness. And it also just further helps just focus on the sweetness as we get these panels where like the way that the horn is set up, it's like attached hanging from these chains between these planks of wood and zoo patrons are invited to like See how well you can lift it. Newsflash, they can't. It's heavy as shit. Yeah, so it's bone in a keratin sheath. So it's essentially made from the same stuff as like a deer horn would be. But then with like a dense bony core. And these these would have been really fucking big. Triceratopses, and, and like most ceratopses, had very, very large heads. Uh, which also preserved exceptionally well. We have a lot of heads. And not as much of the rest of the bodies because... The heads, for some fucking reason, were really good at getting fossilized. Yeah, we get those, and 
I'll also mention part of what trends on Twitter is everyone going, he's like a big kitty when they see the way that he rolls up and just like his natural relaxed sitting posture. And all of the dinosaurs in this book look just like my cats in their posture, but Masaru especially and his like Twitter feeds just include lots of example tweets of just people going, my cat sits just like that, crying laughing emoji. R-O-F-L, great posture. Yeah, so there's, there's a fun note in the Dr. Dino's lab log at the end about Fujiwara's work in trying to figure out how Triceratops would sit. And the way that, that this work that he's done has filtered back into the narrative of the story where it's like an important part of this is part of the reason that he sort of takes off on social media and becomes a larger attraction for the park again is because of actual science that was like, like, like I just, I love the fact that this story continuously accommodates like actual paleontological work into the narrative in like a strong way. So it doesn't, it's not just like, insert generic dinosaur that tries to kill someone here insert sauropod here it doesn't matter which sauropod we pick just as long as it's a big old sauropod for the shot where we are impressed by it it's very specific like well we have evidence of this from this species and we're going to tell a narrative about this and how this would work in this situation it's fabulous yeah and like this and then also like an earlier like the first dino log when fujiwara talks about his personal research history you know he talks about the moment realizing in his study that like there's only so much you can realize looking at bones of extinct creatures also think about living creatures and like what you can gain from looking at their skeletons in relation to how we know they move and how their posture works because we can observe it, you know, and then extract that information and apply those sorts of ideas to examining the skeletons of these extinct creatures, and it all just seems very thoughtfully done. So, um, really no notes in, in how Triceratops was presented here because, uh, Masaru is beautiful and flawless. Um, right down to, like, so the pattern of scales... We have skin impressions from Triceratops. We have a couple. Maybe just one. Couldn't find that much. But we have it. And it consisted of large hexagonal scales. Then with some larger ones around them sometimes. With little conical protrusions. Which is exactly what we see in the comic. I, I feel like I really need to bring up how like correct this is. Just because I complained about T-Rex earlier. But this Triceratops is so close. Like... Everything that we know about the animal is here, including there's only one in the enclosure, which seems like a fair decision. So I know that if you watch like a dinosaur documentary, a lot of times they'll have like the big herd of Triceratops and then the T-Rex comes up and they all like get in a circle around their young. It seems probable just based on like the fact that we haven't found a bunch of Triceratops together in the same bone bed. They're always like isolated specimens. Most of the time, Triceratops probably lived in solitary, like, a life, or maybe in small family groups. As an older male, Masaru definitely should be in a single solo enclosure. <laughs> Especially since he's got 
this huge display. So this is, I would say, the first species that we've talked about here, but not the last, but has a big ol' fuck me sign on his head. Which is what those horns in that thrill are. They weren't really used for combat, they were used to look hot. And you find them hot, don't you? I really love display structures in dinosaurs because they always look really cool. Yeah, it's like unique touches. And, like, they they were very ridiculous. Triceratops actually has very toned down, like, horns and frills compared to some of its um, close relatives. If you look at something like Styracosaurus or um, Chasmosaurus, you're going to see something that is absolutely hilarious and how over the top it is. Oh, I guess I should note, since I've done this for the other species so far, uh, Triceratops was discovered by George Lyman Cannon in 1887, but wasn't described, which is when they, like, name it, and are like, this is a dinosaur that is probably related to these ones. Uh, wasn't described until 1889. Uh, it was described by Othniel Charles Marsh. Marsh described a fuckload of dinosaurs uh, back during the Bone Wars. If I remember correctly, I, I didn't. I didn't Google Marsh again. I mostly just focused on the dinosaur research. But yeah, wonderful edition of the book. I I want color pages of Masaru just because I I want I just I want everyone to get color pages, and I also want more Masaru. And I'm like I don't know what else you would do with Masaru unless you have like him wanting to display for a mate, and you need to figure that out. That would be a fun narrative to do. I don't know. I, I want more of every animal in this, but also I'm like, I looked at that list of species that we had on the map, and I said, I want all of them as well. Yeah, want more focus on more species before doubles of what we already have, I imagine. So here's the thing. I would love to get to like volume 50 of this series. You would love to reach one piece level length of the series? I don't know how long that is, but I would agree as long as it's, like, at least a million volumes. The One Piece volumes are in the triple digits, yeah? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that sounds perfect to me. That's that's a good length. The thing is, you could just... You could have animals leave the zoo and bring new ones in if you want. You could have Suzume, like, go and start working at a different, bigger dinosaur park. If you run out of ideas, you can always introduce some new species that weren't on that map. But also, that map is, like... 50 volumes worth of content right there easy but yeah to finish out the content that we have here chapter five is the last of volume one it's entitled roy's destiny the dinosaur's name is roy would you like to pronounce this species name before i do dilophosaurus roy is a dilophosaurus and before we even fully see him we get signs by his enclosure letting the reader know that what we would expect from certain other movies and media is wrong, with the Q&As of, doesn't it spit poison? Relax, Dilophosaurus does not actually spit poison. And doesn't it have neck frills? Which is answered with, that would be cute, but Dilophosaurus's neck frills are a fictional interpretation. I guess this does imply that the movie Jurassic Park came out in-universe, which, considering we found dinosaurs in 1945 and had, like, presumably some kind of... Di that's... I... It does specifically note that his species is one of the ones that's brought back genetically, as opposed to found in the wild. That's true, and that makes a lot of sense, because in a change from so far, we are out of the late Cretaceous, and we are on to our first Jurassic series. Dilophosaurus is from the early Jurassic, and was the apex predator of North America in that time. 
and the largest animal in North America at that time as well. His little text box says, length six to seven meters, weight 280 to 400 kilograms. Is that what kg is? Kilograms? Yeah, yeah. So, um, a medium-sized pharopod. For, for, on, a, on a dinosaur scale, not that huge. On a animals in general scale, pretty fucking big. Yeah, and what do we describe this head accoutrement as? Um, he has two uh, thrills on his head. So, if you've seen Jurassic Park... You'll remember the dinosaur, the small ones that ate Nedry. What's his name from... Was he on Seinfeld, that actor? I have no idea. I know him from Jurassic Park. But the one who gets eaten, they spit the venom on him. He's the one who steals the stuff in the bright yellow raincoat. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. You remember the scene. It's a very memorable scene. Well, I mean, first of all, like, quadruple the size. Because they made them a lot smaller because they didn't want them to get, like, confused with velociraptor i am sort of like i don't know i feel like the neck frill you attach and also the head crests and also the fact that they spit poison stops the audience from getting confused with velociraptor when they watch your movie but okay you can make them tiny i guess but they were bigger and they didn't have poison or neck frills obviously that was just made up for the movie as like a this is a thing we're gonna speculatively do the less jurassic park looking roy here is the subject of a chapter about dinosaur health, where it's stated that as one of the species that got brought back through genetic engineering, he is more likely to get sick. And so regulation-wise, those sorts of dinosaurs have to get more frequent medical checkups. And we get introduced to a vet character, Shira Nui, who is a douchebag. He is a very dreamy douchebag. Yeah, like, he has a moment where he catches Suzume as she's falling, and we get the sort of screen tones as he's holding her and going, Are you alright? I I went, oh no, not this. Hopefully Volume 2 won't develop a love triangle. It cannot after the way he fucking acts to her later in this. Yeah, essentially, he is hyper-competent at his job, but is just a douche about it, and... Basically, like, is asking everyone questions about Roy's recent behavior and through data about, like, the way he's been moving and examining his scat. We get a great little Hickman-style graph sort of diagram showing where he's been, like, in his enclosure, which also is going to be very useful when I make his enclosure in my video game because <laughs> I have a, a full 2D light map of all the details. Dilophosaurus is one of my favorite species because I think the heads, the skull, like not just the frills, but the way that their jawline is, is just so fucking cool. I love Roy. Roy's great. He's not as good as Masaru, but you know, no one can be Masaru. All right. But is Roy my number two in this book? I think maybe because he is one weird looking fucker and I love him. He is certainly a weird looking fucker. And essentially they like track how much he's been moving around, low versus high places, time spent near the water or not. And essentially their concerns have to deal with potential leg pain and potential kidney issues. And basically we get like full on dinosaur surgery 
Well, they, they put him under anesthesia so that they can get a better look at him, um, because, yeah, it would be kind of hard to hang out with an animal this large with this many sharp pieces. Yeah, they, like, talk about, like, his shedding problems, and there's just a lot of talk about how his behavior and how different changes and processes relate to his health. And shortly after all this, we just get the vet being a douchebag to Suzume. You know, basically she's just friendly and is like, you're so impressive. I want to work hard to be like you. And he's just like, oh, will you? You talk big? I hate that. If you don't do a good job now, your animals are gonna die. You're naive and incompetent. I hate you. Fuck you. He also gives her shit for her dad, who it's it's kind of quietly revealed here. Her dad is the guy who genetically engineered the additional species that weren't on the, like, I can't remember the name of the island. I'm just gonna call it Skull Island, because that's what it is. It's a Skull Island kind of story, where here's this place with the prehistoric life. That's an island in the middle of the ocean. It has a bunch of species that it doesn't make sense for it to have on it on it yeah and like as he's being a douche kaido actually comes to her defense for once and is pissed off and yelling and meanwhile just calm collected douchebag asks are you covering for her out of guilt for killing suma ichiro and yeah just confirmation that he worked at that or, like, was working at the time of the quote-unquote incident 15 years ago that the guy who died then was Suzume's father. And it's just dramatic chapter end, dramatic volume end. There's gonna be more information about the incident and what sort of feelings is this going to cause between Kaido and Suzume. Also, uh, looks like it was a Giganotosaurus in the incident, would be my guess, based on the little glimpses we see of it. Yeah, it's like a dramatically backlit, frankly just like hindquarters of a dinosaur. Just, uh, if, if it was properly lit, we'd be looking right at its cloaca. Yeah. That's, uh, that's dinosaur genitalia, same as birds. It's, it's an everything hole. We've, we found one fossilized on Cicatosaurus, which is my personal favorite dinosaur, because... We have essentially found them mummified to the point where we can identify the genitalia, which is very cool. Uh, we get a couple, like, big cloaca shots in this comic because they don't care about drawing dinosaur bits. Yeah, like, I imagine rating-wise that genitalia aren't really a big concern for censors when the genitalia are so decidedly not human-looking. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's the back end of a bird. It's like drawing a cat butt. But yeah, like, this chapter, I think, is a bit heavier on human drama. Do you have any, I guess, notes about Roy or about anything with chapter 5? I mean, I love Roy. I love Dilophosaurus. Uh, the state dinosaur of Connecticut. How many states have state dinosaurs? Mm, a lot of them, actually. They have, there's like a lot of, they, there's a surprisingly large number of like, state things. But, yeah, no, Dilophosaurus is the one for Connecticut. Stenonychosaurus was nearly a state dinosaur for Arizona, but they decided not to because it's also found in places other than Arizona. And they're like, no, our dinosaur needs to be an Arizonan dinosaur through and through, which is fair. But, you know, good on Connecticut for that. 
uh, because this is a great species. Kind of hilariously, the when they found the um, bones and issues, they found when they found it in uh, 1940 in northern Arizona. Weird. I guess Connecticut didn't care about that. Uh, when they found they found three skeletons, and for some reason uh, Samuel Wells, who was the one who like described it and named it, decided that it was a Megalosaurus, which is a genus that lived in Britain which at that time was still on a different continent, and it makes no sense to call it that. But apparently at that time in the 50s, they just dumped anything they didn't have a proper name for into Megalosaurus. This is part of why I'm looking at, like, the guys finding those dinosaurs in 1945. I'm like, how would they even know what the fuck they were looking at? Because you, you, shit like this, you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> you found a Dilophosaurus, a North American dinosaur, and you're like, yes, this is the same thing as this British one. That's... no. <laughs> he later realized that it had the crests on the skull, which finally was like, okay, no, I need to give this actually a different genus name. So they went with Dilophosaurus in the 1970s. Two-crested lizard is what the name means, because named after the crests, which are a distinctive feature. We don't have enough of the skulls still, because like every skull we found has been fragmentary. We don't know the exact size or shape of them. It's also entirely possible that they could have had keratin sheaves, so like horns on triceratops or like deer antlers. So they could have been even bigger and weirder looking than even what elements we have. I really like how they look in this. I think that covering them with scales makes sense because I think that probably used for sexual display. Again, it's a, it's a fuck me like head ornament, which a lot of birds do stuff like that. A lot of dinosaurs do stuff like that. There's a fun detail about raw eating fish. That seems fairly likely, based on the shape of the skull. Very similar to uh, Spinosaurus, which we knew no eat fish from their bone histology, and also the fact that they look like crocodile heads. And also um, modern day uh, Garials. Garials? It's like a GH, I don't know how you pronounce that exactly. Which are the kind of crocodile that mostly eats fish. However, there's lots of evidence we know that Roy also would have, back in the early Jurassic, eaten large uh, other herbivorous dinosaurs as well as eating fish. So a nice varied diet of whatever he could get his fucking teeth round. Which makes sense because he's a very large animal who is living right after an extinction event. I would not be a picky carnivore back in those days because right after the Triassic you have um, three quarters of life vanish between the Triassic and the Jurassic periods, which is an extinction everyone forgets that happened, but has a huge effect on actually dinosaurs becoming the dominant forms of life in the Jurassic. It's cool. No venom, no neck frill. Oh, uh, Roy has feathers. We have possible trace evidence of fossils in Dilophosaurus. We have found uh, what's called a resting trace fossil. So basically trackways, if you've ever seen those that get preserved where dinosaurs have walked, which we have a lot of trackways for Dilophosaurus. A resting trace fossil is that, except it's from the dinosaur sitting on its ass. And around where we have the impression of the dinosaur sitting down, there are like little lines that look like they are probably the kind of downy proto feathers that you would see on like the dino fluff, that you would see on a lot of dinosaurs that we have more direct evidence of. There is a bait that this might just have been from the dinosaur moving but either way that doesn't necessarily preclude feathers and i think restoring dilophosaurus with feathers is a good idea 
And also, I think it looks really cute. Dilophosaurus's, like, weird head skull is, like, such, like, a nightmare mouth thing, like, with the weird inlet in it. And then putting the feathers on, I think, really just... It looks nice. And there's at least a fair chunk of evidence for it. So in those cases, I think you should always go with feathers if there's even a hint that feathers are possible. It's striking, yeah. But Roy is a very good boy, and I'm glad he's going to be okay. Yeah. Chapter 5 is the last chapter proper. The end of the volume has a lot of the usual things of... We get brief little afterwards from the creators saying, Thank you for reading. Please keep reading. I'll do my best. And a few of the shorter little comedy bits like we already mentioned. Volume 2 is out in March. Yeah. I'm pre-ordering. You should also pre-order. Yeah, we get a two-page preview of Volume 2. Just fervor saying that we're going to find out more about the incident next time. And well, a proper cloaca shot, too. Yeah, we get this scene of Ichigo escaping to include a real clear look at Ichigo's cloaca as he's escaping. Ichigo, I think, is an Allosaurus. Yeah, I that is my best guess right now, just based on his head. I don't have a human directly next to him for size, but I take back what I said about Giganotosaurus earlier. Looks Allosaurus to me. We'll see. That's That's a loose guess. But yeah, a little something to whet your appetite for next time. A late Jurassic apex predator. That might tie into the genetics because I think the implication from this is that all of the late Cretaceous dinosaurs are like ones they found on the island, which okay, but that's fine. And then all the early Cretaceous to like Triassic dinosaurs, including all the Jurassic ones, would be the genetically engineered ones, which ties into the stuff that Suzume's father was up to. That makes sense. Yeah, okay. Allosaurus does make sense there. Um, Itaro Kinoshita did a manga before this, just one, called Gigantwo Ute. I'm probably badly pronouncing that. Um, I looked this up. It has not been localized to, like, the English language, so far as I can tell. But it is another dinosaur comic, but this one's about fighting dinosaurs. I really want to fucking read it. So if someone could localize that, I'd be very grateful. It it looks really fucking metal. But his favorite dinosaur is Giganotosaurus, which explains how much cute time we got with Yuki. And Fujidawa, his favorite dinosaur is Cicatosaurus, which is a great fucking choice. So Cicatosaurus, I'd mentioned earlier, we have the mummified remains. There is, at the end of Fujidawa's afterward, there is a very wonderful little drawing of a sleeping Cicatosaurus, which... We know that there is a Cicatosaurus in Enoshima. I am dying to meet the Cicatosaurus. Yes, please. I want five issues of this about the Cicatosaurus. Do you call them issues? Parts? Uh, chapters, generally. There we go, chapters. I want five chapters straight about Cicatosaurus. I love Cicatosaurus. And we know so much. We know what color Cicatosaurus is. We know that Cicatosaurus had, like, this fun sort of brush on the end of its tail, probably made of protofeathers. We know, like, a lot about the musculature, and we know a lot about the lifestyle and stuff, because once you've got the colors, it tells you a lot about the environment. Um, basically, imagine a deer if it's also a parrot lizard. All right. They're fantastic. But, um, yeah. That is, that's Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 1. We will be recording an episode about Volume 2 in March, probably out in April, I guess. But yeah, yeah, this was this was my endeavor to make you build a manga collection. 
I am building exactly one manga collection. So far. I really can't think of anything else that I would need to get, because I could just borrow yours. That just means I haven't found the other things yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, is there anything else you would like to say before just wrapping up and announcing next week? Uh, Colin Trevor is a big old dummy. Who's that? He directed the Jurassic World movies. Okay. <laughs> I blame him the most. Anyway, that was me. I haven't actually said that much about Jurassic Park in this. I guess the big difference is Jurassic Park is not designed to take care of the animals like in the book and in the movie that first park is designed to be a theme park with dinosaurs in it and not like a zoo that functions the way a real zoo works and then also the whole narrative is actually about like the dangers of genetic technology and not about like look at cool paleontology stuff that we can do that's sort of a sideline on that um and then the sequels all make that exponentially worse as they go on. Um, I, that first movie is like one of my, I think it is my favorite movie. And then unfortunately, by the time you get to Jurassic World, it's awful. And this is what an actual dinosaur park would look like if you built an actual functional one in the world where they're concerned with taking care of the needs of their animals rather than literally everything about the park depicted in Jurassic World. Thank you. Okay, I think I'm good. <laughs> So next week is your choice of topic. What are we going to be reading? Um, God, I don't even know what to call it still. I, we're reading the 60s, the 1960s Dalek strips from the TV21 magazine. This is more Doctor Who comic, but it's, it's Doctor Who comic in which there is no Doctor Who. There are just Daleks. They, they made these because... People really liked Daleks. There's uh, a thing that it's literally called Dalek Mania after Beatlemania in the 60s. There was, after the, the debut of Doctor Who, a huge merchandising and like sideline thing of Daleks. And one of them was this series of one page comics in TV21 magazine that published like a lot of different like tie in, like sci fi stuff um, for kids to read. And yeah, uh, they, they were recently Doctor Who magazine, um, Panini magazines, if you want to look them up online, did a restoration of the original strips and collected them all in a single volume. So we're just reading that. We're not going to really talk about them, I think, in the level of detail that we normally do on this podcast, just because of like the way they're written. There's actually like a lot that happens because each story is like six pages and there is like a full magazine of this. But they're really cool. We're doing we're doing some old British comics again. And it's Doctor Who again, because I'm me. Yep. Next time, Daleks. Look forward to that. Gorgeous Pre artwork. Yep. And also pre-order Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 2 from your local bookstore. Just just get it. Make sure we, we need to hit... I would say if there's at least 100 volumes, I'll be happy. Anything less than that, I'm going to be disappointed. But yeah, thank you for listening, and see you next week. Bye, everyone.